Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nudge, joined by my co-host calling in from Amsterdam, Alain Ben-Joseph, and a very special guest, a guest who I cannot wait to interview today. That's Daniel Niederer, CEO, founder of Seven Friday Watches. I'm going to kick this over to Alain to give a brief introduction to Dan before we hear from the man himself. Take it away, Alain. Let me take you guys back to the beginnings of the tens, 2010s. No watches being made by Swiss brands with Asian movements, hardly any cool designs, let alone cool names. And who the hell dared to spend money on Instagram for their marketing purposes? Comes a guy from Switzerland, Dan Niederer, cool cat, been in Asia, came back to Switzerland, shook up the watch world. If you're new to the watch collecting game, could be you haven't heard of Summer Friday. The name says it all. It needs to be fun seven days a week. TGIF, seven days a week. Comes Dan, shakes up the world. Cool designs that I've never seen before. Swiss brand using Japanese movements. And then hooks up with a rising star, another rising star, Watch Anish. Dan, welcome to the studio. I'm so happy to hear you. We both seem old because it's almost 12 years ago that you started Seventh Friday. Yes, thank you very much. Very nice to meet you, Rob. Good to reconnect finally, Alan. Thank you very much for having me here. Welcome, welcome. It's, it's, it's amazing what you've done. And maybe before we jump in to the start of Seventh Friday a dozen years ago, maybe give us a quick intro, who you are, where you're from, and what led up to your journey to start Seven Friday? Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's a loaded question. Who am I? It's, uh, it depends very much who you ask. Ask my kids, ask my wife. There's a lot of different opinions out there, but I'm originally Swiss. I think I'm as Swiss as you can get, even from up until for those who may know, it's a famous cheese coming on. It's a very small place. It's one of the smallest cantons. Grew up in Switzerland, studied in Switzerland, did my master in law of all all possibilities and decided that's not my avenue um, nothing against practicing law but not my cup of tea I finished my masters and wanted to see the world and that happened by coincidence to be in Asia in the watch industry so that's how I got into the watch industry very frankly it was an accident but a positive one did you have an interest in watches before you decided to start your own brand where was the genesis of Seven Friday really I had an interest in nice things. I wasn't particularly a watch fan. I didn't know anything really much about watches. I remember when I had my the last apartment before I left Switzerland, uh, there was a watch store around the corner in Zurich. And I checked out and I heard, you need a one-stage enough, you need a nice watch. And I had one for my parents for graduation, but it wasn't exactly my taste. And I looked into and I saw a watch. And so that's really nice. It looked quite complex. It turned out to be 250,000 Swiss francs, so that was my first entrance really in the watch industry. Before, I was very much Swatch, G-Shock, there were the watches I was wearing. So that, that's really how I learned what possibilities in terms of pricing and complexity. It happened to be a grand complication for my IWC. So um, apparently, I picked immediately the, the, the top line there. Um, I, I think if I can just... You know, go a little bit. Uh, so, yes, I like nice things, whether they're cars, whether there's architecture, whether there's art, whether 
with wine. There's a lot of nice things in life. I was a nightclass people, by the way. And watches brought me more into this universe. And what fascinated me is the people and the branding aspect of things. Well, that's good to hear. That's a perfect fit for the real-time show because we do like to get to know the people behind the brands. And you're absolutely consistent in your message because, of course, you have created the 7 Friday Games to create an offline community as well as your incredible online presence. And we'll talk about that later because that comes further down the line chronologically in the development of 7 Friday. But it is amazing that you started yourself, your collecting journey, as it were, right at the very upper echelons. And then you decided to make an entry-level brand that, and this is a word that is far too often overused these days, actually disrupted the industry. Nobody saw it coming. You're extremely present from the get-go. You hit the ground running. I remember 2012 when you were founded. I graduated from watch school that year and I used to attend Salon QP every year and I, I saw this brand explode before my eyes to the point at which I believe one year you took over the entire top floor and had a bar and correct me if I'm wrong, my memory's a little foggy from that long ago, but that was quite impactful. Well, there was also a lot of whiskey at that night, so I can fully understand, appreciate it was the memory's a bit foggy. Um, but when you when you say, well, I, I started in top echelon after watch industry, it was a pure interest based on aesthetics at that time. Uh, that must have been like 1999. And the reality came then when I moved, when I got this job offer to manage the subsidiary of a Swiss trading house in Australia, subsequently in Singapore and in Tokyo and in Bangkok. And they happened to distribute luxury watches. So at that time, suddenly, I was dealing uh, with brands from a uh, Eterna at that time, uh, Porsche Design, Maurice Lacroix, up to Audemars Piguet. So I had the whole range, right? And that's really how I got over 10 years. I was then more and more restructuring those subsidiaries because we lost some brands like Jaguar Culture. So we had to bring in new brands in, build new businesses. And over 10 years, I learned a bit about the, the industry. And I think it, it, it allowed me, hopefully, to make a more rational decision why and where I want to launch Seven Friday than in 2012. So how did you get to that point, deciding you were going to work with the suppliers that you did and create a watch that looks like the original Seven Friday look? Because I think for most people that know the brand, the original models are still the best known when people say the name. That's what they think of the the TV-shaped cases, the use of unusual materials, integration of rubber in the cases, and these extremely creative dials that use quite basic movements but expressed the information in a novel fashion. How did you get to that point? Did you design the watches yourself or did you work with an external designer or someone that's part of the company then or maybe still? I can promise you if I would have designed the watches myself, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Um, simply because I can't design at all. So since the beginning, we're originally actually three partners. Um, one is more from the product development side. He's unfortunately not part of the company anymore. We separated four or five years ago. And the other one is the designer, Arnold Duval. Since the beginning, he designed all the products. The way we started was, first of all, defining a price bracket and defining not the aesthetics, but we do what we don't want and what we want emotionally achieve. So we didn't want to have a product that bets on what's selling most. So we know selling most is a round shape, hence we don't do a round shape. The most whole complication is a chronograph, hence so far we haven't done a chronograph. So we tried to really op uh, uh, go 
a bit in opposite direction of the, what the mainstream, what the most opportunistic approach is, with the belief to build a brand, you can't be too opportunistic, sometimes painful. And the credit, obviously, for then coming out with the cushion shape, which we haven't invented, it has been around, goes to Goswano. So he came after two years of developing, of, of researching and, and then designing. He finally come, came with the product, the P1. That was the first one, P101. Uh, up where we said, okay, that's it. Let's do it. And that was really the decision. And still today, that is the shape we are known for and the shape we are pushing. We had another shape in between, but still this one is predominantly the shape uh, uh, we're living on. Interesting also is that um, the P1, which is now the P1B01, so it's just a life cycle, like in a car industry, like the FIFA series of BMW, you know, you rejuvenate every couple of years. The same we're doing. So it's still one of the top five selling products. So actually, uh, I think all three of the original, P1, P2, P3, are still in the top sellers, which is a very good and very healthy thing for us. But in, when it comes to what, what I mostly did, I challenged from a market point of view. I challenged from what we shouldn't do, not to be opportunistic, but credit for the design goes clearly to Honor Duo. Going from there, you guys created amazing designs out of the ordinary. You don't want it to be the 12 and the dozen. What made you break the mold by not opting for Swiss movements as a Swiss brand? Walk us through that decision, please. Sure. I mean, it's a bit the same philosophy. Ten years ago, when people asked me, my standard answer was a mix of midlife crisis, frustration, and stupidity. This is a bit self-derogatory uh, assessment in the sense that I did a lot of restructuring. I saw a lot of brands struggling, trying to tell me how we should do the same as Rolex does and to achieve, uh, uh, to achieve results. And it's just, as a new brand, you can't. So... There's a lot of learning curves when you're dealing or trying to build small brands, independent brands, because it's always an uphill battle. And I think one thing that teach me, or I think I thought, and I found then like-minded people in Honor Duval and, and the third party, Laurel Rivenau, was that we agreed we need to break out and, and we need to ask all the uncomfortable questions because it's so much easier just to say, okay, I want to launch a brand. What do I need? A couple millions. I need Swiss made. Uh, I need a round case. I need a silver dial and I need a black dial. And first I go out with our minute, second date, central, ideally, and not the date, obviously. Then second day I go a chronograph, maybe I do a moon face. So we all have seen that repeatedly. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm not saying this is wrong at all. I'm just saying it's very difficult to come up as a new brand and try to copy what the industry is doing since generation successfully. So... All those questions, shape, same thing. Round would have been easier, maybe. Maybe not, in retrospect. Functionalities. We said we can start doing mechanical complication, but it's going to be more expensive. Do the people really want all those complications? Do the people really care so much about the chronograph function to pay so much more, whilst they really want, what they really want is a sporty-looking watch, maybe? How many people are really using the functionalities? and how many people appreciate the mechanism used for that. So there was discussions we had, and the same about the movement. We had the discussion, okay, well, there's a Swiss movement, there are Japanese movements. Now, now, what we do about the Japanese? Well, they're pretty good in quality, aren't they? I think they're a master of industrialization. 
And let's face it, as unsexy it might sound to some of which still think any watch in Switzerland is produced in the Swiss mountains by a lonely uh, 75-year-old watchmaker, it's not the reality. There is an industrial aspect of it, and let's face it, it's a positive, because it's more reliable, those watches are to last, and uh, the Japanese are really, really good in it. Uh, look at the car industry, for that's one thing to look at it. The second thing is, yes, we are Swiss. I'm Swiss. I'm super Swiss. But uh, I think the other people in the world, other nationalities, they can produce quality, number one. Number two is, I don't believe that generalized a nationality is better in one thing or the other thing. I prefer to deal with people or companies, and they can be in many different places in the world. So obviously what came out, we also looked at Chinese movements at that time. Uh, we were not completely convinced yet at that time about the quality, about the sustainability, but the Japanese movement were already tested in the market since a long time, underappreciated, frankly. And when you look at, and it always depends what functionality is, uh, what you're looking at, we compared it. And basically, I think the difference between an ETA movement basic and a Miyoto movement is a deviation of tolerance of five seconds a day, if I remember correctly and an official power reserve of two hours, from 44, 42 hours. So for us, we came to the conclusion, we want the price point, we want absolute top quality in finishing, we want complex style, which has a, we call a visual complication, we want an extraordinary case construction, we want a movement that's very reliable, and to have the price point, we came to the conclusion Japanese it is, and we also came to the conclusion that we take the risk, and it was, frankly, a risk to go out and say, yeah, we are Swiss brand, but we're not taking Swiss movement. Luckily, it turned out well. It could have gone the other way. Okay, so you managed to tick all those boxes. You do have incredible finishing, incredible case construction, a very interesting dial, reliable movements, and this Swiss reputation because of your origin and the foundation of the company. I'm wondering... Given the price point of the initial P-series models, which was, I believe, under a thousand euros, I, I might be wrong, but I think it was around that, you must have had to invest very heavily in manufacturing to get that quality at the price point that you were able to offer the watch. It's actually correct that the first price point was, I think if I remember correctly, the P1 was at 725, 725 Swiss franc. It's now a thousand fifty. We had to correct it uh, very quickly afterwards. So I did a bit of a miscalculation there as well, but just in terms of full transparency. We didn't have uh, lots of money when we started uh, with the brand. We, we had this constellation. So I invested, when I came back to Switzerland, I invested first in a design studio. That's where my two other business partners came from. So Laura Rufenhoff was the other owner of the design studio, and Arnold Duval, the designer, worked there. And we had the possibility to test a lot of things within the design studio. That helped us a lot, number one. Number two is, and credit there goes also to Laura Rufenhoff, he had exceptional connections in the uh, watch industry, in the production, especially in China. We tested, obviously, we tested quite a few, but it didn't cost that much money, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe that's a disappointment now. It was what costed more is a time, maybe, is the relationship. Um, and I must say, in my career in the watch industry, probably the best partner I ever had in this industry is our Chinese production partner because they were tolerant. They were very, very um, generous with testing different finishings, uh, different sizings. 
What also helped us obviously is about uh, on the design studio side, on the production side, we already had quite expensive experience in designing and production of different products in different price categories. So it wasn't that extreme really at all. So I think it's fair to say you're a design-led brand, which is probably more common now than it was 10, 12 years ago. But it obviously enabled you to iron out a lot of the kinks that people that come to the industry with less experience have to experience on the route to producing a product that works, that meets all of the original criteria that you laid out for it. But still, when you launched the brand, how many variations of the P-Series were there and what kind of volumes did you produce up front? Or did you launch the brand, soft launch it with renders and prototypes and see what the response was before you placed that initial order for completed watches? You're completely right. In 2012, the, the beauty was there was a bit of lack of design innovation in the watch industry and particularly in that price segment. So that was like, I would consider in retrospective where we're always smarter, hopefully, and there was a bit of a vacuum we managed to capitalize on. Now things changed rapidly. There's a lot, but in general, throughout the price classes, and luckily a lot more innovation, a lot more crazy developments in the watch industry, which is, I find very interesting. We had, when we started, we had three models, P1, P2, P3. Amazing, innovative name giving for the products. Um, so the one was, the first was industrial essence, so steel, uh, polished, more bright, and the P2 was the more copper color, the Industrial Revolution, 1920s. And the P3 was the engine inspired, actually inspired by the back side of a coffee racer from Ducati. And those three watches we launched production um, in total 1,000 watches. And we launched it in 2012. So I got first deliveries in July, if I remember correctly, July 2012. And started calling up a uh, whole family, friends, whoever I knew. I got some watches here. And it, it, it's weird because you start there and you, nobody knows, right? And uh, how are you going to get word out? How are you going to get going? Uh, we had a business plan for the first 12 months to sell 1,000 watches. And if we sell 1,000 watches, we're going to keep going. If not, we have to seriously reassess because we didn't have any investors and never had any bank loans or anything. So... What happened is, um, yeah, it motivates you to be very creative. And we were really lucky and that you, again, wasn't part of the strategy. I was, where can I be seen? Where can I have the watch being seen uh, to the world? And obviously we did Facebook and Instagram came. Somebody mentioned it to me because very honestly, before 7 Friday, I have not mingled at all in social media. I'm personally not, not involved. I'm not showing anything from my personal life. Never did before. And uh, so, okay, Instagram, fantastic, it's free, let's do it. And uh, that's how it started. And it also kept me motivated. I was alone in the office, uh, tried to sell watches and communicate about watches, did the quality control, and um, posting pictures on Instagram and just the, the likes, you know, when you can activate all the likes. And at that time, there weren't that many. And the comments, it makes bing, bing, bang, and it gets active in the office and you feel like the world connects with you. It helped mentally, honestly, a lot. Uh, uh, to get things going. And I remember one of the first article ever written about Seven Friday was also that summer by Anish, Anish Bart. At that time, he was writing for a blog to watch. I think at that time it was still a blog to read or was a blog to read. And now, uh, I don't know. But you know which blog I mean from Ariel. And um, we catched up in London and um, 
he just started to do to start his own business as Wachanish. And we became actually in summer of 2012, I think it was in August, his first customer. And um, he had a very fresh new style. And I think he was the first one really to embrace Instagram as a tool. Also, he's exceptional in, I mean, that in a very positive way, in self-branding. If you remember how he showed up at Basel World with his special suit. So he was in himself a brand and really developed that. And that helped us obviously tremendously. Also, always put Seven Friday uh, in connection with brands and products much more expensive. So it started uh, slow. Um, I remember my dad, he had to buy a watch at full retail price. And um, it suddenly started to pick up. I think it was September. It picked a bit up in October. I got contacted by the US and by the Philippines. And that was the first time we started doing bigger business to the extent that a thousand watches were sell, sold out at the end of January 2013. So we already did then a relaunch the production, obviously, beforehand. So between February 2013 to May, I believe it was, 2013, I had no watches to sell. So I was traveling around opening markets. And in October 2013, we had 50 markets open. So in the second year, so in the first year, between 2012, 2013, which is an extension, we did an extended financial year, which is then about 18 months, we sold ultimately 11,000 watches. Wow. So you really did hit that gap in the market about as hard as it could be hit. Nowadays, of course, people have tried to follow the same pattern with a design-led brand and heavy social media presence. But of course, that gap has narrowed slightly. And I have to say that the majority of new independent brands are somewhat less creative from top to bottom than Seven Friday was at the time. One of the things that has always stuck in my mind about Seven Friday was, yes, you made this huge impact with a watch that looked like nothing else and a watch that certainly was more affordable for something that offered so much visual interest. But you had that one case shape. You had that one shtick. This is the TV case. This is the way it works, the visual complication on the dial. It's a perfect example, really, for a phenomenon that we often refer to in watch analysis as five years of cool. So when you come up with something brand new, you have this rush of interest. You're able to sell, yeah, five figures of pieces within the first couple of years of existence, which is remarkable. But then what do you do after that starts to cool off? Because there comes a point where every brand has to look at itself and say, okay, we've hit the window perfectly. We have our five years of cool. We're the brand everyone's talking about. But how do you extend that five years to 50 years? What was the pressure like when it came to design a new case shape for the first time? Yeah, it's exactly the point. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people also in the industry, obviously, our seven five is just a trend. Luckily, we were a trend. I think it would have been incredible, more difficult without have being a trend. What did it allow us? So first of all, I think you you can't expect the, the rush we had to be just to be the normal suit. That, that's just the way it's going to go forever. And I think that is important. The second point, it allowed us to build some reserves as a company to invest, to, to keep growing and work on innovation. Now, we had uh, uh, we worked on, on, on different product lines. So one thing was on the watches, obviously on different materials, uh, exploring more different uh, segments, uh, also Try establishing a new product line that allowed us to go back to 850 entry retail price point with a Seiko movement at that time. 
So there was a lot of things. There was also a new shade we introduced, which was, frankly, semi-successful. And we obviously developed the uh, additional product lines like the eyewear because we felt we don't want to become a victim of our own industry. Um, and mingling in other industry always helps us to keep ears and eyes open to see new developments, to uh, test different materials, to talk to different people, to have more innovation. I think that's one thing. Now, I'd just like to address very clearly the critics we get, and I'm sure you heard this, or you may be between the lines, you addressed it a bit, and I think it's important. There were some people saying, well, Seven Friday, what's happening? Where's your revolution? Where's your... And I think one thing I want to say to that, we can't, you can't live on revolutions alone. So when we came out, we were lucky enough to do that revolution, right? Uh, to come out something new, uh, filling a vacuum, but you can't keep doing that. That's actually contradictive to branding, which is continuity, which is confidence, which is uh, sustainability. But we did have, and that was uh, uh, our internal problem maybe a little bit, we had the separation of our business with uh, some of the initial partners. That costed us a bit of time, also for innovation. We then integrated everything here at 7 Friday. And if you want, yes, there was uh, maybe two, three years where we could have brought a bit more innovation in terms of products, our existing collection, because that's what we're also standing for. Constant innovation. Innovation can be material. Innovation can be finishing. Innovation can be, but also maybe completely new ideas like the, the 3D watch, the 3D printed watch we launched uh, two years ago, and we continue now with the second edition. this year. So we had a bit of a slowdown in innovation, and that's why I'm quite happy to be here, And uh, because we're now looking for this year, next year, where we're catching up massively. So we have to prove our case to make it sure. Our case every day, every month. We had a bit of slack in between. But we keep working on, we try to keep proving. So we have to bridge from, how should I say, from an from a initial trend, from a certain hype to a sustainable and, and, and uh, uh, not predictable, but a brand where you can expect that things are going to be around, the quality is there, and innovation will continue. If you saw that bell curve going to the right, going down from the peak again, walk us through what you guys did. Because you mentioned Philippines as one of the major countries where you guys blew up. And I remember that vividly. You guys are there, uh, I believe, in the top five of uh, watch brands. And I believe still today, whereas it seems mainland Europe retracted a bit, what, what have you learned from that? And why is it so successful in Asia and it diminished in Europe again? So in Asia, yes, it keeps going. Yeah, it comes strong, strong, except uh, there are certain market conditions like China, we all know, where things is a bit slowing down, but otherwise it's, it's going well. In Europe, uh, interesting enough, Europe was one of the last markets to really pick up. Then also, when we look at the numbers at that time, who did we sell most of our watches to? We knew it's predominantly tourists from Asia, from the US, and from the Middle East. And when especially when tourism slowed down, also the sales slowed down in Europe. So if you want the branding of well, brand recognition, Europe was not on the level as it was uh, in the other continents. Why is that? Again, it goes back to, unfortunately, like always a little bit the finance. We did not have the means to invest everywhere. And as you know, it, it, it's heavy. Huh? It's heavy if you, if you want to have other, to conquer the world. So we had the opportunity in a certain way, but 
to, to keep driving the branding aspect of things was unfortunately not as successful in Europe as it was in Asia or the Middle East or in the US. And even the US slowed a bit uh, in the last four years. But um, I think predominantly Europe, but it was, I mean, we had some fantastic, phenomenal successful countries in Europe till I figured out all the watches landing back in Hong Kong. <laughs> so we know a bit the watch industry. I mean, not everything is exactly as it appears on the surface. And there's nothing bad. I mean, there's parallel business, it's just part of the industry. And uh, uh, I'm not complaining about it. But I think the domestic business in Europe has not been very strong in the history of Seven Friday because we never had the time and the, the means to enough invest into that. So you indicated something very interesting in this answer parallel import. You didn't mention counterfeiting, but and, and you went through your timeline of history very quickly of innovation, but you guys did innovate because if I remember correctly, you were the first watch brand to incorporate uh, NFC chips and an app and to fight counterfeiting. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Actually, we did the first seven Friday games in 2013 winter. 14, I think 14 winter, and that's when first we became really aware from a massive influx of um, fake Seven Fridays. Yeah, it's two sides. People come, hey, this is the ultimate compliment that you made it. Yes, it's true, but it's still painful. And that was exactly the time we decided um, what, what can we do? Because let's face it, as a usual customer and even as a collector, very, very well-made copies you will not I know there's a lot of people out there and a lot of people say, oh, we certify and we can, I can guarantee you it's an original. Very difficult since I know seasoned watchmakers, 30 years of experience, 35 in after-sales services at Rolex, Patek and all the, all the top brands. They're telling me really good fakes or the semi-fakes, you know, when they're using partially original parts and partially fake parts. They can, but they need to take the watch apart. They need to take out the movement. Otherwise, they can't be sure. So as a, as a general consumer, how can you? And at that time, we said, okay, because we got people complaining, rightly so, I said, well, how should I know? Then you try to tell the people, well, please buy from the original source. But then, let's face it, we all like a good price, right? a good deal. So um, we developed this technology, but it wasn't just for verification, authentication. Um, it was also for internal logistics. You know, we have warehouses, you move from one place to the other place. We had six students checking the serial numbers and entering them in the system manually. Now, how accurate can that be? And how 21st century is this? So there's a technology out there which helps you for internal structure, for security, for transparency, for speed, effectiveness, and ultimately also for consumer confidence, which, to my opinion, still today, is only the NFC chip. I, I'm not aware of another technology on them. I'm sure maybe there are there is some where you can absolutely identify. But you have to put it inside the watch because if it's not inside the watch case, the authentication is a bit mute. Uh, so ultimately what we wanted to build is an unbreakable link between the physical product and the digital twin, which is now a 7 Friday application. So that's what we developed. It's a completely stupid project. I mean, in terms of size and investment for a small brand like us. But we felt like, the symbiosis between having a product and whatever they decided, the design is retrofuturistic, at least we believe. And But doing a watch mechanical, which is very traditional, 
Um, on the other hand, mixing and using, not inside the watch, but as a support function, the 21st technology makes a very interesting and sexy mix to us. So we want to use technology to support the customer confidence, to support uh, certain features, not necessarily in the watch, because obviously uh, there was also suddenly the big hype about smartwatches coming out. So yes, we developed a chip inside the case that took a bit of time because steel is the biggest interference with um, uh, with the transmission of, of a chip. The chip is passive, so it reacts on the phone. The downside was at that time, uh, Apple phone hasn't activated the NFC reading capability yet. So we had to find a way around that. So we worked with an engineer company in Switzerland together to develop and introduced it in 2016 on all our models. Even the sunglasses, the eyewear, they all chipped. Um, so today in the application, yes, you can authenticate all the watches, all the eyewear. You can register them to your account. You get a digital warranty card. Um, and there's actually a lot more features coming up and benefits coming up um, in the future to make it a bit easier because at least from my own experience and also some people I'm talking to, you have multiple watches, you don't want to keep all the packaging and what you're always losing is this bloody warranty cards. So this is an easy way, especially since now everybody or not everybody, a lot of people like everything digitalized, you have everything at one place, easy to handle. And, uh, yeah, the craziest thing is we just, you know, put it forward. This is a feature for the customer. Didn't really look too much at it. And suddenly we had 140,000 people registered in there. So that's where we realized, okay, there's this a real necessity. People are really interested in it. People really want to have that possibility and that security. And we keep developing that as we speak. 140,000 people registered in the app. So... That's a lot. That's a lot more than I expected. Is that close to the total number of customers or is it 50% of the total number of customers you've had in the last 12 years? Can you tell us that or give us an idea at least? Yeah, it's about 50% of uh, the total customers we had. Now, what I want to just clarify because one thing we said when we started 7 Friday is two things we don't want to do. We try to avoid bullshit and assholes. Sounds very simple and you don't have to edit that later. Um, I like things simple and it doesn't always work, but it's an objective. So in the application, we have 140,000 people, which is, it's growing maybe about 50, 60 a day. And, but product, we have 30,000 or 33,000. So over the 10 years, we sold around 300,000 products. So then it's 10% of products sold registered, but not all of the product obviously had an NFC chip since we only introduced it in 2016. Um, what we see, we communicate it more. We printed it on the on the on the on the on the top of the packaging, so people know exactly what to do. And with the introduction of the NFC capability in the Apple what, uh, Apple Apple phone, a lot more people joined. So now we have every day multiple people uh, contacting us because obviously it doesn't work. We don't say straight away it's a fake, but we say please contact us so we can maybe explain it in a bit uh, more positive way that their watch is not the original. Okay, so that sounds like quite a lot of legwork behind the scenes. How many people actually comprise the 7 Friday team now? We are nine people. Wow, that's very efficient. I think it was in 2013, 14, when we exploded at that time. And um, I remember there was a gentleman calling me in the office, and I was alone. So it was 2000, end 2012. And was a gentleman calling me in the office, I uh, pick up, and he yeah, said, 7 Friday, how can I help you? 
And he was like, yeah, I'm just, you know, really impressed. It's really cool what you guys are doing. And then down the line, he asked me, so how many people are you? And I honestly felt embarrassed to say that I'm alone. So I lied, actually. I said, we are three. And then he came back and said, what? I thought you are 70 people. But that was the miracle of Instagram at that time. So today, yes, that's one of the reasons we invest in technology. We have, since many years, a full-fledged ERP system. We have a B2B app. So all our partners worldwide, they, anytime they do a forecast on 12 months, they place the order inside the application. They have all the documents inside the application. The order comes directly to our ERP system, goes directly to the warehouse, and the shipment is with scanning of the watches dispatched the next day. So, yes, we did invest a lot, a lot into technologies to support because I feel as well, I'd rather have people really focusing on smart, proactive development of business than just administration, which is nothing bad about it, but not everything is very sexy there, right? I want to go back to the NFC chip momentarily and ask an unsexy question because I'm pretty technologically illiterate. So when you launched this technology, it was pretty novel to say the least. And I was quite skeptical because I was thinking, okay, this whole digital realm is evolving faster than I could ever possibly hope to understand or stay on top of it. How long is this technology going to be around for? Is there a possibility that in the future, it may sound ridiculous and please tell me if it does, but the NFC chips no longer work in the same way that the technology is superseded by something else that would make this technology obsolete. I guess you've done a very deep dive into the likelihood of that and the longevity of this technology. And it is, I suppose, totally likely that it will always exist in some capacity for the duration of the brand's next several decades of existence. But what were your findings when you were having that conversation? It's actually interesting. So the idea got brought to me by a British company uh, at that time. Uh, there was the whole hype was about smart products, about the milk. You don't have no more milk. The fridge realizes and orders again. That's where it came from. So we've got quite a detour. And they came to me and with this chip idea. And um, it, it just, yeah, it caught my attention. I knew about chips, but I thought that's really nothing for the industry. And so at that time, uh, that's now seven years ago, NFC chips have been around for 30 years already. So there's nothing new about it. It has been widely tested. And that's always a good thing. By industries, they are vastly bigger than the watch industry. So pharmaceuticals, stock control, imagine them counting tablets, um, is done with those chips already. So it has been around for a long time. Credit cards, they all have an NFC chip in there. So it is... Uh, 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 it has been applied multiple times. It has been tested. And that's why we went for it, because there hasn't been any technology which is widely available and has been so widely tested for such a long time. That gave us the confidence this is something solid and not just the flukes. It's just in the product industry where it hasn't been, and still today hasn't been really adopted. There are a couple of startups trying to implement that, uh, for the for the consumer industry, and there's a couple of brands who does like one that comes to my mind is Montclair, for example. They have NFC tags in their in their jackets. But looking into the future, I think there's always what. First of all, it's not electronics really, or it's not a power. So the chip is a passive chip inside the watch. So it doesn't do. You don't have to re replace it, and. It doesn't really have a time when it just doesn't work anymore, um, therefore. So normally that should really last for a very long time. But we shouldn't forget, I think the, the watch, the mechanical watches we are producing, and not just us, I mean the industry, 
is probably one of the most sustainable products, funny enough, in the sense that it would really literally last forever if you take care of it, right? So it can be that the product made outlast the life of the chip, but we don't know yet because we only know backwards 40 years. But looking forward, 40 years already not too bad. How much further? I don't know. So you've given me the perfect segue into my next question. You mentioned the packaging at one point and you have the instructions for the NFC chip printed on top of it. And you've also managed to do away with warranty cards, which are a headache for most watch owners to keep track of, I would imagine. Sustainability. What are your thoughts on that as a brand moving forward? Are you making changes? I'm I'm sure you've already innovated in many ways, but tell us about that and what you think its importance is for the next phase of development. It's a very sensible topic, I think, because there's one direction everybody talks. I think sustainability makes a lot of sense, but for common sense reasons, not for fashion reasons like we have it at the moment. And I'm not into greenwashing, to put it very blunt. So... Any product I produce and sell is not exactly, what should I say, in the in the, this ecological thinking. But from the beginning on, we just tried always to make things and you know produce things in a way that makes sense. So if we talk about the packaging, so first of all, okay, there's an aesthetic aspect of our packaging, which is it's an industrial crate. How you ship machines around the world, printing machines, for example, they come in a wooden crate, hence the wooden crate. But we also did it because it's it's not super expensive, which allows the consumer and he feels confident to use it. So a lot of our customers send us pictures by using it. The kids put their pens, they put their forks and knives in it. They use it as a vase. So it's reused in many different ways. And that is, for me, the sustainable aspect we try to achieve with everything. The watch itself we already touched. The watch is sustainable if it's really made to last. That's why till last year we really didn't do a quartz watch. So we did the first one for a very different reason. Then we have inside the packaging, we have an EVA packaging because it's it's on a recycled material. Why? Oh, because it's possible. So why shouldn't we do it? But we didn't go out of our way and, and we have for PR reasons, we want to do and we want to do this. We just did it because it made sense. It's there. And I think that's for me what sustainability is about. Yes, you want to buy tomatoes rather from your neighbor farmer than from a, 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 across continents. Makes sense. That's sustainability for common sense. And that's what we try to apply, apply at Seven Friday. I don't think we make a big fuss about it, but we generally uh, think that way. Like shopping bag. All our watches come with a shopping bag. It's not in paper. It's not in plastic. It's in fabric because on one side, What's in fabric, I use again. I can use to the gym. I can use to the beach. So it's not just for the shopping experience and for the branding. And on the top of it, well, I'm very happy if people use the shopping bag further on with the 7 Friday logo on it, obviously. So in a, in a nutshell, we try to be conscious. We try to really challenge things. Challenge why do we do it? Does it make sense? Do we have to do it? Same as the warranty card. Do we have to produce warranty cards? It's not the cost that some people might think. Uh, it's really... They're just lying around and getting thrown. When they look into the future, the same. So we we always checking, we always discussing with all our different production partners ways we can innovate, ways we can improve, ways we can be better, ways we can be more efficient. And again, I think it's, it, it should be a more normal process than a big uh, marketing agenda as it is the last couple of years and very strongly at the moment. But that's my, my very personal thing or feeling about it, but it doesn't mean we don't take it seriously. 
I mean, if you imagine your brand, whatever brand it is, in whatever industry it is, that yeah, 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 no, we are really taking care of the planet and CO2 is really a bad thing, but then you jump in a plane and visit all the different markets. You tell me how that makes sense. I wanted to quickly jump back to tech. Yeah. NFC. You mentioned the word digital twin that sparked the, the, the Web3 enthusiast in me. Are you guys logging all these registrations on your own network or using a blockchain for that? Do you have ambitions to work with blockchain? From there, did you guys actually do anything with NFTs? That's a very good and complicated question or loaded question because, yes, okay, first of all, most of our digital twins are on uh, in a cloud on a database or not in our office. But yes, we did often, we did start uh, looking into NFT. NFT as a token, but NFT also as a blockchain-based certification. And we started offering that. We put it a bit on hold. We still have, so we have a certain amount there are because consumer wanted certain not. But ideally, we would migrate all that because I think it's very much in the interest of the consumer to have ultimate ownership over the data itself as well. So that's one thing. The other thing is the NFTs as visuals. So we did some projects with different artists like uh, Deka from Hungary, with Kata, another one. And we did some playing around when the hype was on, had also to realize this is not our media. So blockchain as a technology to give additional security, very much. Playing with digital art, not so much our cup of tea, I think. But having said that, we at the moment actually designing a Metaverse 7 Friday space. So a, a shopping space in the Metaverse of 7 Friday. Oh, now that is interesting, and there couldn't be a better watch for the metaverse, in my mind, than the 3D. This is your latest addition to the catalog. I believe all the variations thereof are currently sold out. But as Alon likes to say, and as you alluded to before, the greatest brand success in the world, let's say Rolex, is known for its evolution rather than revolution. And you kicked off 7 Friday with a massive revolution, as you said, and then you needed to flesh out the brand and to make that the brand itself and the catalog more sustainable long-term. The 3D, however, is once again a bit of a revolution. So for any of our listeners that haven't yet seen this incredible, very futuristic model, can you tell us a little bit about it, its process of design, and how you see that model in the collection going forward? Yeah, pleasure. Um, the 3D was actually came about by a gentleman visiting the office like so often is. Those ideas come from outside. And showing us what's possible in 3D printing. My standard standard of knowledge was still, um, yeah, you know, there's these sausages, one about the other, and for days and days, and then you get some weird construction. But I wasn't I wasn't really aware how refined and, and and detailed and with what kind of tolerance it can be done. But materials can be used as well. What kind of technologies? Uh, what kind of machines are around? The moment we saw it, I think it was in 2020 or 2021. No, it was 2019, actually. And we immediately said, okay, we need to do something. Uh, we need to do something there. So we are by far not the first one uh, looking into 3D printing. Many brands and groups did and constantly do. I think there's a Dutch brand who did a case printed in 3D. For, for us, we just had a different approach. I think most brands look at it and say, oh, 
we have a watch X. Can we do the same in 3D printing? So, okay, you do the same design with a different process. Now, for us, and that's just our understanding, 3D printing is not for industrialization. Um, you never can compete really with industrialized process for bigger quantities. It's only for smaller quantities potentially. But you have to adjust the designing because there's different finishings, there's different treatments depending on materials you're using. What fascinated us very much is the polyamide. Um, polyamide, uh, some people come there, yeah, it's plastic. Well, mm, depends where plastic is defined. Polyamide is, and there's different levels of polyamide. There's the petrol-based polyamide and there's the organic polyamide, which is based on castor oil. So we met with HP at that time. HP is very much at the forefront of 3D printers. And uh, we discussed different possibilities. And we realized, and Arno, our designer, realized, he had to go back to the drawing board and completely redesign the watch. Because, for again, for us, it makes no sense to do the same watch in 3D printing. So we have to show what organic structure you can do in 3D. What is the added value of 3D printing? And not just, uh, I'm not just talking about the pricing or aesthetics. I'm talking about construction. I'm talking about uh, uh, flexibilities. Like the strap insert, fantastic material for that. About the, the packaging we have, in which is a construction in one piece, therefore way more solid and more efficient and not assembled. So... It, it forced us to really rethink the whole production process of a watch. But at the same time, we obviously wanted to make sure it's recognized as on Friday, not just because of its innovation character, but also because of its features like the cushion shape again and the disc syndication like we have on the M series. So it was a merge of these two universes. It turned out, as so often in many industries, I guess, to be a lot more complicated and complex than we anticipated, which is a good thing. Because sometimes if you would know all the trouble you have to go through, maybe you would never start. And um, yeah, we, we launched it. It was successful. It sold out fairly quick. Uh, it was also a very different price point than we usually have. So our average price point today is 1250 US dollar, which is now Swiss franc, whatever. And we have this one at the first one at 35, the second one at 4,500 Swiss franc. So we will continue. It took a bit a uh, while because we had to change some production parameters. Um, we will launch the 3DB. So that was the 3DA. The 3DB in uh, April, actually, of this year with an evolution of the concept. And uh, very much looking forward. We're a bit frustrated it didn't happen earlier. We call that our satellite collection. So we still have our core collection. It doesn't mean we just jump in the whole collection. We stay where we are. But it allows us to really push the envelope, to really be innovative, to task new technologies, and also do smaller series. And, but that's really on a side note, because it should not be important, it happened to be the first Swiss made. But it was by accident. Is it printed in Switzerland? It is still 3D printed in Switzerland, actually in open sale. You know, remember this little canton I mentioned before where I'm originally from? So actually there it's printed with uh, fantastic partners. Yeah. It's assembled in Switzerland. The movement is Swiss. The other parts, so the, a lot of the steel parts we used to do in Switzerland didn't work out so well and are now produced in China. Okay, very good. All right, I have one more question, then we're going to wrap up the show, and it pertains to the offline community that you've been so dedicated in building. Tell us more about the 7 Friday Games, how that works, why it's important to you to get out in front of your customers and adoring followers. 
I mean, we were lucky enough in 2012 that we managed to grow globally digitally thanks to, at that time, Instagram very quickly. But I don't think digital ever replaces the real human contact. For us, from the beginning on, it was never about, oh, online or offline. It was always trying to combine these two things. So the more success we got on online, the more we wanted to go out and meet the people. Whether it was all the smaller events, and uh, we did also in Amsterdam, if you remember, it was a crucial part. And I think a big part of what the brand is today is the interaction with all the people around the world, whether they are fans or not, whether they are customers or not. That games was the celebration, the yearly celebration. I'm in the watch industry now since about 23, 24 years. I went to many brands' conventions every year. I mean, those brands are fantastic, they're successful, they're good, but I never liked those conventions. So you go normally for three days in a hopefully better, or if not worse, hotel. You sit in the meeting rooms, you get PowerPoint presentation telling you how the brand emotionally feels. And I just find it's kind of wrong. You know, I have to feel the brand to emotionally connect, but not via PowerPoint. So I mentioned that to a friend of mine, and he said, well, why don't you just make this on Friday games? And actually, we uh, we had it in, in Switzerland, and uh, another friend did that long time ago, where people get together and you do activities together. You celebrate in the evening together. You spend quality time together with people you hopefully, or that hopefully think alike. You make friends around the world and you create moments to remember. And by doing that, the intention is that people go home after two to three days from these games and really felt and lived Seventh Friday for this period without any PowerPoint necessary. Well, that's a lovely place to stop. A real connection to a real community and no PowerPoints a million miles anywhere near the event. That's brilliant. Dan, thank you for spending time with us. That was a very energetic, hour-long conversation. I really, really wish that everybody that we had on the show had the same kind of energy and insight that you do to the industry and how it works. It's really, really very much appreciated. And I hope that our community enjoyed it. If any of our listeners have questions for Dan and would like us to do a follow-up episode, which I'm sure we'll be able to arrange in the future, then please do get in touch. You can do so via our dedicated Instagram handle, that's at therealtime.show, or you can contact either Alan, David, or I via our regular personal Instagram handles. I'm there at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alan can be found at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. And David is on Instagram at D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. You can also contact Alan or I via email, either Rob or Alan at therealtime.show or via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. We'll be back soon with more top quality watch content. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.